Section 9 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 13, Great Writers, by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. Lord Byron, Part 3. How different was Byron's painting of Spanish life from that of the immortal Cervantes, whom Lowell places among the five master geniuses of the world? In Don Quixote, there is not a sentence which does not exalt woman or which degrades man. A lofty ideal of purity and chivalrous honor permeates every page, even in the most ludicrous scenes. The whole work blazes with wit and with the wisdom of a proverbial philosophy, uttered by the ignorant squire of a fanatical and bewildered knight. But amidst the practical jokes and follies of all the characters in that marvelous work of fiction, we see also a moral beauty, idealized, of course, such as were rivaled only in Spanish art in the Madonnas of Murillo. I believe that in the imaginary sketches of Spanish life as portrayed by Byron, slanders and lies deface the poem from beginning to end. Who is the best authority for truthfulness in the description of Spanish people, Cervantes or Byron? The spiritual loftiness portrayed in the lives of Spanish heroes and heroines, mixed up as it was with the most ludicrous pictures of common life, has made the Spaniard's work of fiction one of the most treasured and endearing monuments of human fame, whereas the insulting innuendos of the English poet have gone far to rob him of the glory which he had justly won in his earlier productions, and to make his name a doubt. If in the course of generations yet to come the evil which Byron did by that one poem alone shall be forgotten in the services he rendered to our literature by other works, which cannot die, then he may some day be received into the pantheon of the benefactors of mind. I would speak with less vehemence in reference to those poems which are generally supposed to be permeated with defiance, scorn, and misanthropy. In Manfred and Cain, it was with Byron a work of art to describe the utterances of impious spirits against the sovereign rule of God. Had he not fallen from high estate as an interpreter of the soul, the critics might have seen here nothing more to condemn than in some of the Grecian tragedies, many passages in the Paradise Lost, and in the general spirit of Faust. It is no proof that he was a blasphemer in his heart because he painted blasphemy. To describe a wanderer on the face of the earth, driven hither and thither by pursuing vengeance as the first recorded murderer, the poet was obliged by all the rules of art to put such sentiments into his mouth as accorded with his unrepented crime, and his dreadful agonies of mind and soul. Where is the proof that they were his own agonies, remorse, despair? Surely we may pardon in Byron what we excuse in Goethe in the delineation of unique characters, the great creations which belong to the realm of the imagination alone. The imputation that the sayings of his fallen fiends were the cherished sentiments of the poet himself may have been one cause of his contempt for the average intelligence of his countrymen, and for their inveterate and incurable prejudices. Nothing in Dante is more intense and concentrated in language than the malediction of Eve upon her fratricidal son. May the grass wither from thy feet, the woods deny thee shelter, earth a home, the dust a gravel, the sun his light, and heaven her God. Yet the reader feels the naturalness of this bitter cursing of her own son by the frenzied mother. How could a great artist like Byron put sentiments into the mouth of Cain such as would be harmless in the essays of a country parson. If he painted Lucifer, he must make him speak like Lucifer, not like a theological professor. 
nothing could be more ungenerous and narrow than to abuse byron for a dramatic poem in which some of his characters were fiends rather than men we have no more right to say that he was an infidel because cain or lucifer blasphemed than to say that goethe was an atheist because mephistopheles denied god if byron had avowed atheistical opinions in letters or conversations that would be another thing but there is no evidence that he did and much to the contrary a few months before he died he was visited by a pious crank who out of curiosity or christian zeal sought to know his theological views byron treated him with the greatest courtesy and freely communicated his opinions on religious subjects from which it would appear that he differed from church people generally only on the matter of eternal punishment which he did not believe was consistent with infinite love or infinite justice perhaps it would have been wiser if he had not written cain at all considering how many readers there are without brains and how large was the class predisposed to judge him harshly in everything no doubt he was irreligious and skeptical but it does not follow from this that he was atheistical or blasphemous there is doubtless a misanthropic vein in all byron's later poetry which is not wholesome for many people to read especially in manfred one of the bitterest of his productions by reason of sorrows and disappointments and misrepresentations it was byron's misfortune to appear worse than he really was owing to his unconcealed contempt for the opinions of mankind yet he could not complain that he reaped what he had not sown some of his biographers thought him to be at this time even morbidly desirous of a bad reputation going so far as to write paragraphs against himself in foreign journals and being filled with glee at the joke when they were republished in english newspapers he despised and defied all conventionalities and conventional england dropped him from her list of favorites the life of byron strange to say was less exposed to scandal after he made the acquaintance of the countess who enslaved him and who was also enslaved in turn his heart now opened to many noble sentiments he returned in a degree to society and gave dinners and suppers he associated with many distinguished patriots and men of genius he had a strong sympathy with the italians in their struggle for freedom one quarter of his income he devoted to charities he was regular in his athletic exercises and could swim four hours at a time he was always proud of swimming across the hellespont he was devoted to his natural daughter and educated her in a catholic school he studied more severely all works of art though his admiration for art was never so great as it was for nature the glories and wonders of nature inspired him with perpetual joys there is nothing finer in all his poetry than the following stanza ye stars which are the poetry of heaven if in your bright leaves we would read the fate of men and empires it is to be forgiven that in our aspirations to be great our destinies o'erleap their mortal state and claim a kindred with you for ye are a beauty and a mystery and create in us such love and reverence from afar that fortune fame power life have named themselves a star there was never a time when byron did not seek out beautiful retreats in nature as the source of his highest happiness hence solitude was nothing to him when he could commune with the works of god his biographer declares that in eighteen twenty one he was greatly improved in every respect in genius in temper in moral views in health and happiness he has had mischievous passions but these he seems to have subdued he was always temperate in his diet living chiefly on fish and vegetables and if he drank more wine and spirits than was good for him it was to rally his exhausted energies 
His powers of production were never greater than at this period, but his literary labors were slowly wearing him out. He could not live without work, while pleasure palled upon him. In a letter to a stranger who sought to convert him, he showed anything but anger or contempt. Do me, says he, the justice to suppose that video meliora provoque, however the deteriora secor, may have been applied to my conduct. Writing to Murray in 1822, he says, It is not impossible that I may have three or four cantos of Don Juan ready by autumn, as I obtained a permission from my dictatress, the Countess Guccioli, to continue it, provided always it was to be more guarded and decorous in the continuation than in the commencement. Alas, he could not undo the mischief he had done. About this time, Byron received a visit from Lord Clare, his earliest friend at Cambridge, to whom, through life, he was devotedly attached, a friendship which afforded exceeding delight. He never forgot his few friends, although he railed at his enemies. He was ungenerously treated by Lee Hunt, to whom he rendered every kindness. He says, I have done all I could for him since he came here, Genoa, but it is all most useless. His wife is ill, his six children far from tractable, and in worldly affairs he himself is a child. The death of Shelley left them totally aground, and I could not see them in such a state without using the common feelings of humanity, and what means were in my power to set them afloat again. As to any community of feeling, thought, or opinion between him or me, there is little or none, but I think him a good principled man and must do as I would be done by. Toward Shelley, Byron entertained the greatest respect and affection for his suavity, gentleness, and good breeding, and Shelley's accidental death was a great shock to him. Among his other intimate acquaintances in Italy were Lord and Lady Bellessington, with whom he kept up a pleasant correspondence. The most plaintive, sad, and generous of all his letters was the one he wrote to Lady Byron from Pisa in 1821, in acknowledgment of the receipt of a tress of his daughter Ada's hair. The time which has elapsed since our separation has been considerably more than the whole brief period of our union and of our prior acquaintance. We both made a bitter mistake, but now it is over and irrecoverably so. But this very impossibility of reunion seems to me at least a reason why, on all the few points of discussion which can arise between us, we should preserve the courtesies of life, and as much of its kindness as people who are never to meet may preserve more easily than nearer connections. I assure you I bear you now no resentment whatever. Whether the offense has been solely on my side or reciprocal, or on yours chiefly, I have ceased to reflect upon any but two things, that you are the mother of my child and that we shall never meet again. At that period, about a year before Byron's death, Moore thus writes, To the world, and more especially England, he presented himself in no other aspect than that of a stern, haughty misanthrope, self-banished from the society of men, and most of all from that of Englishmen. The more beautiful and genial inspirations of his muse were looked upon but as lucid intervals between the paroxysms of an inherent malignancy of nature. But how totally all this differed from the Byron of the social hour, they who lived in familiar intercourse with him may be safely left to tell. As it was, no English gentleman ever approached him with the common forms of introduction, that did not come away at once surprised and charmed by the kind courtesy of his manners, the unpretending play of his conversation, and on nearer intercourse, the frank youthful spirits, to the flow of which he gave way with such zest as to produce the impression that gaiety was, after all, the true bent of his disposition. Scott, writing of him after his death, says, 
in talents he was unequalled and his faults were those rather of a bizarre temper arising from an eager and irritable nervous habit than any depravity of disposition he was devoid of selfishness which i take to be the basest ingredient in the human composition he was generous humane and noble-minded when passion did not blind him about this time eighteen twenty three the great struggle of the greeks to shake off the ottoman yoke was in progress i have already in another volume attempted to give the facts in relation to that memorable movement christendom sympathized with the gallant but apparently hopeless struggle of a weak nation to secure its independence both from a sentiment of admiration for the freedom of ancient greece in the period of its highest glories and from the love of liberty which animated the liberal classes amid the political convulsions of the day but the governments of europe were loath to complicate the difficulties which existed between nations in that stormy period and dared not extend any open aid to struggling greece beyond giving their moral aid to the greek cause lest it should embroil europe in a war of which she was weary less than ten years had elapsed since europe had combined to dethrone napoleon and some of her leading powers like austria and russia had a detestation of popular insurrections in this complicated state of political affairs when any indiscretion on the part of friendly governments might kindle anew the flames of war lord byron was living in genoa taking such an interest in the greek struggle that he abandoned poetry for politics he had always sympathized with enslaved nations struggling for independence and was driven from ravenna on account of his alliance with the revolutionary society of the carbonari a new passion now seized him he entered heart and soul into the struggles of the greeks their cause absorbed him he would aid them to the full extent of his means with money and arms as a private individual he would be a political or military hero a man of action not of literary leisure every lover of liberty must respect byron's noble aspiration to assist the greeks it was a new field for him but one in which he might retrieve his reputation for it must be borne in mind that his ruling passion was fame and that he had gained all that he could expect by his literary productions whether loved or hated admired or censured his poetry had placed him in the front rank of literary geniuses throughout the world as a poet his immortality was secured in literary efforts he had also probably exhausted himself he could write nothing more which would add to his fame unless he took a long rest and recreation he was weary of making poetry but by plunging into a sea of fresh adventures and by giving a new direction to his powers he might be sufficiently renovated in the course of time to write something grander and nobler than even child harold or cain lord byron at this time was only thirty-five years old a period when most men begin their best work his constitution it is true was impaired but he was still full of life and enterprise he could ride or swim as well as he ever could the call of a gallant people summoned him to arms and of all nations he most loved the greeks he was an enthusiast in their cause he believed that the day of their deliverance was at hand so he made up his mind to consecrate his remaining energies to effect their independence he opened a correspondence with the greek committee in london he selected a party including a physician to sail with him from geneva he raised a sum of about ten thousand pounds and on the thirteenth of july eighteen twenty three embarked with his small party and eight servants on board the hercules for greece after a short delay at leghorn the poet reached cephalonia on the twenty fourth of july he was enthusiastically received by the greeks of argostoli the principal port but deemed it prudent to remain there until he could get further intelligence from corfu and Missolonghi visiting in the interval some of the neighboring islands consecrated by the muse of homer 
The dissensions among the Greek leaders greatly embarrassed Byron, but did not destroy his ardor. He saw that the people were degenerate, faithless, and stained with atrocities as disgraceful as those of the Turks themselves. He dared not commit himself to any one of the struggling, envious parties which rallied round their respective chieftains. He lingered for six weeks in Cephalonia without the ordinary comforts of life, yet against all his habits, rising at an early hour and attending to business, negotiating bills, and corresponding with the government, so far as there was a recognized central power. At last, after the fall of Corinth, taken from the Turks, and the arrival at Missolonghi of Prince Mavrocodato, the only leader of the Greeks, worthy of the name of statesman, Byron sailed for that city, then invested by a Turkish fleet, and narrowly escaped capture. Here he did all he could to produce union among the chieftains, and took into his pay five hundred Suliots, acting as their leader. He meditated an attack on Lepanto, which commanded the navigation of the Gulf of Corinth, and received from the government a commission for that enterprise, but dissensions among his men and intrigues between rival generals prevented the execution of his project. It was in Missolonghi, January twenty-second, 1824, that, with the memorandum, on this day I completed my thirty-sixth year, Byron wrote his latest verses, most pathetically regretting his youth and his unfortunate life, but arousing himself to find in a noble cause a glorious death. The fire that in my bosom prays is like to some volcanic isle. No torch is kindled at its blaze, a funeral pile. Awake, not Greece, she is awake. Awake, my spirit, think through whom thy lifeblood tastes its parent lake, and then strike home. Seek out, less often sought than found, a soldier's grave for thee the best. Then look around, and choose thy ground, and take thy rest. Vexations, disappointments, and exposure to the rains of February so wrought upon Byron's eager spirit and weakened body that he was attacked by convulsive fits. The physician, in accordance with the custom of the time, bled their patient several times against the protest of Byron himself, which reduced him to extreme weakness. He rallied from the attack for a time and devoted himself to the affairs of Greece, hoping for the restoration of his health when spring should come. He spent in three months $30,000 for the cause into which he had so cordially entered. In April, he took another cold from severe exposure and fever set in, to relieve which bleeding was again resorted to and often repeated. He was now confined to his room, which he never afterwards left. He at last realized that he was dying and sent incoherent messages to his sister, to his daughter, and to a few intimate friends. The end came on the 19th of April. The Greek government rendered all the honor possible to the illustrious dead. His remains were transferred to England. He was not buried in Westminster Abbey, however, but in the church of Hucknall, near Newstead, where a tablet was erected to his memory by his sister, the Honorable Augusta Maria Lee. So Harold ends in Greece his pilgrimage, there fitly ending, in that land renowned, whose mighty genius lives in glory's page. He on the muses consecrated ground, sinking to rest, while his young brows are bound with their unfading wreath. To bands of mirth no more in Tempe let the pipe resound. Harold, I follow to thy place of birth, the slow hearse, and thy last sad pilgrimage on earth. I can add but little to what I have already said in reference to Byron, either as to his character or his poetry. 
the Edinburgh Review, which in Brougham's article on his early poems had stung him into satire and aroused him to a sense of his own powers, in years later, by Geoffrey's hand, gave a most appreciative account of his poems, while mourning over his morbid gloom. Words that breathe and thoughts that burn are not merely the ornaments but the common staple of his poetry, and he is not inspired or impressive only in some happy passages, but through the whole body and tissue of his composition. The keen insight and exceptional intellect of the philosopher-poet Goethe recognized in him the greatest talent of our century. His marvelous poetic genius was universally acknowledged in his own day, and more than that, so human was it, that it attracted the sympathies of all civilized nations, and as Lamartine said, made English literature known throughout Europe. Byron's poetry was politically influential also by reason of its liberty-loving spirit, arousing Italy, inspiring the young revolutionists of Germany, and awakening a generous sympathy for Greece. Without the consciousness of any mission beyond the expression of his own ebullient nature, this poet contributed no mean impulse to the general emancipation of spirit which has signalized the 19th century. Two generations have passed away since Byron's mortal remains were committed to the dust, and the verdict of his country has not since materially changed. Admiration for his genius alone. The light of lesser stars than he shines with brighter radiance. What the enlightened verdict of mankind may be two generations hence, no living mortal can tell. The worshippers of intellect may attempt to reverse or modify the judgment already passed, but the impressive truth remains that no man, however great his genius, will be permanently judged aside from character. When Lord Bacon left his name and memory to men's charitable judgments and the next age, he probably had in view his invaluable legacy to mankind of earnest searchings after truth, which made him one of the greatest of human benefactors. How far the poetry of Byron has proved a blessing to the world must be left to an abler critic than I lay claim to be. In him the good and evil went hand in hand in the eternal warfare which ancient Persian sages saw between the powers of light and darkness in every human soul, a consciousness of which warfare made Byron himself in his saddest hours wish he had never lived at all. If we could in his life and in his works, separate the evil from the good, and let only the good remain, then his services to literature could hardly be exaggerated, and he would be honored as the greatest English poet, so far as native genius goes, after Shakespeare and Milton. End of section 9